Conference on the Sacred Liturgy for the Society of the Sacred Heart in 2020 by Monsignor Gilles Vaque, Prior General of the Institute of Christ the King, Sovereign Priest. Introduction Omnia instaurare in Christo Restore all things in Christ This was the motto of Pope Pius X at the dawn of the last century. Today more than ever, this motto seems to me not only burningly relevant, but even more of great necessity. Yes, Christ needs to reign, in society of course, but above all, and it is a little tragic to say this, in his church. The restoration of all things in Christ, let us be very certain, will not be accomplished without the Holy Liturgy being restored to its rightful place, that is, to the first place, as more and more bishops and cardinals recognize today. Indeed, the liturgy is of capital importance for the life of the Church, for the Christian life, and for social life. This is why our constitutions insist that divine worship should be given the first place, all the more so in an institute in which the members intend to live in a canonical manner. To quote the Constitutions, The common life of the members of the Institute is canonical and oriented according to the form of Augustinian presbyteries and of secular canons throughout the course of the history of the Church, at the example of a spiritual family centered around the celebration of the liturgical mystery. The Institute seeks to glorify Christ the King, priest and pastor, by a solemn liturgy centered on the Eucharistic sacrifice, root of all priestly life and source of the pastor's love. It is in the very bosom of the adorable Trinity that we should contemplate the eternal liturgy, in which the three persons sing to one another the chant of divine life and infinite holiness, and the ineffable hymn of the generation of the Word and the procession of the Holy Spirit. Sicut erat in principio. God, desiring to be praised outside of himself, created the angels, and heaven resounds with their acclamation, Sanctus, Sanctus, Sanctus. He created the visible world, and his power burst forth. Celia adant gloriam Dei, the heavens are telling the glory of God. The Old Covenant, with Abel, Noah, Melchizedek, Abraham, Moses, and David, sings a hymn of praise, and yet an imperfect hymn because of the fall. Non es speciosa laus sonore peccatoris. Praise is not seemly in the mouth of a sinner. It is the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, true God and true man, who receives the mission of being the perfect hymn, because he is the true glory of the Father. No one can glorify the Father worthily except by him. Per ipsum et cum ipso et in ipso est patri omnis ordin et gloria. Through him and with him and in him is to thee, O God the Father, all honor and glory. He is the link, the point of union, between the liturgy in heaven and the liturgy on earth. His incarnation has united humanity and all creation to the divine liturgy in a substantial union full of life. It is a God who praises God. 
It is full and perfect praise that finds its pinnacle in the sacrifice of the cross on Calvary. It is the Messiah, the Savior, who before returning to his Father instituted the sacrifice of the new law for the renewal of his immolation. It is he who instituted the sacraments as well in order to communicate his life to the souls of the faithful. And it is to the Church, Lord Jesus, that you have left this sacrifice and this sacrament. It is to this Church, assisted by the Holy Ghost, whom your Father was sending after your ascension, and who had the mission to refresh all her mysteries and to surround all her mysteries with symbols, ceremonies, exhortations, and prayers, so that she may give more honor, so that she may adore the mystery of the redemption, and that her children may penetrate a little further into the understanding of her revealed truths for the profit of their souls. The religion of the Incarnation has given us a liturgy of the Incarnation, an incarnated liturgy. And the Church, assisted by the Holy Ghost, as I was saying before, has formed these marvelous works, these marvelous collections, the Roman Missal, the Roman Pontifical, the Roman Ritual, which contain all the treasures of the liturgy. By uniting itself, then, to the prayer of the man-god Jesus, this prayer of the Church becomes divine, and the liturgy of the earth melts together with that of the heavenly hierarchies and the heart of Jesus, thus echoing that eternal praise springing forth from the dwelling of infinite love, which is the Most Holy Trinity. Christian worship is, as Cardinal Jolnet shows, the axis of the present Church. He continues in the words of the Constitution, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the exercise of the priestly mission of Jesus Christ, exercise in which the sanctification of man is signified by sensible science, in which integral worship is exercised by the mystical body of Jesus Christ, that is to say, by the head and by its members. The Church appears, therefore, as the prolongation throughout time of the mystery of the Incarnation. Continuing the exercise of the priestly function of Christ, most essentially by the sacramental offering of the unique sacrifice of Calvary, the Church, through her liturgy, accomplishes the gestures of Christ by which God is glorified and man is saved. Cultus divinus et sanctificatio hominis, the worship of God and the sanctification of man, which are the two fundamental elements of the liturgical and sacramental plan for salvation. Through baptism, I am marked with an indelible character that designates me for the worship of God, according to the rite of the Christian religion. Through baptismal consecration, I become a member of the kingdom of God and belong to the chosen race, the royal priesthood, the holy people. Pius XII wrote in Mediato Dei that the liturgy is first and foremost the public adoration of God. Man's fundamental duty is certainly that of directing his person and his life towards God. Man normally turns to God when he recognizes his supreme majesty and sovereign magisterium, when he accepts with submission the divinely revealed truths, when he faithfully observes the commandments, when he makes all his activity converge on him. In short, when he gives to God, by the virtue of religion, the worship and homage due to the one true God. Part 1 
The priestly hierarchy exists for the liturgy, and therefore it is the excellent means defined by God for sharing with man his holiness and his grace. That is how much personal sanctification is indissociable from the divine worship. Liturgy expresses and develops what we call today the religious sense, what scripture calls the timor domini, the fear of the Lord. Not only servile fear, but this disposition of reverence, this understanding full of respect that God and the divine are infinitely above us. It is not our poor intelligence that serves as the measure of reality, especially not of divine reality. The Timor Domini helps us to acquire an attitude of suppleness, of dependence, and thus disposes us to welcome easily divine manifestations and to discern them as well, for they bear their marks in themselves. It is also an attitude of simplicity that does not argue with the divine, that does not constantly bring the divine before the tribunal of our reason or the fashions of the present time, but which rather leads one to accomplish generously the will of God and to abandon oneself without excessive worry to his good will. The scripture likes to characterize the holiness of the patriarchs by the fear of God. This fear of God is not only the beginning of wisdom, but also its attainment. Plenitudo sapientia estimere Deum, corona sapientia timor domini. The fullness of wisdom is to fear God. The crown of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The religious sense develops more and more and blossoms into a loving wisdom. How liturgy takes root in the soul of one who understands and loves it. The Christian character of our conscience is determined not by looking at ourselves, but rather by looking toward God. To thee have I lifted up mine eyes, who dwellest in the heavens. Liturgy impresses on us the conviction that we have everything from God, not only the body, soul, and its faculties, but also supernatural tendency, the impulsion toward good, kindness toward others. We are God's property, his creatures, and his adoptive children. And our Heavenly Father has all authority over us. It is not for us to impose on God our way of seeing, nor our own desires. We, especially priests, must be attentive unceasingly to the Lord, who regards us from the sanctuary of our soul. The liturgical sense taken in this manner is identified with the religious sense, the timor domini. Furthermore, the liturgy is ordered by faith, hope, and charity, and in turn the liturgy sets in motion and maintains these theological virtues. The liturgy affirms the faith of the Church. It makes us better understand, feel, and live the great religious truths. The liturgy itself constitutes a theological abode, inexhaustibly rich, a kind of large field of flowers, which are the revealed truths, the doctrinal truths that shine forth, that are, I would say, spread here and there, and not treated systematically as in a theological treatise. Peggy spoke well when he said that the liturgy is deployed theology. But I admit that I prefer Don Guéranger's definition. Liturgy is tradition, 
at its highest degree of power and solemnity. Ah, if one could be convinced of this, no one would dare touch the sacred rites, and no one would dare fumble through his own poor explanation of the mysteries that he is in the midst of celebrating. Liturgy develops the Catholic sense. It sheds light on the nature, the character, the rites of the Church. Consider the admirable hymn for Vespers of Christ the King, which was so badly mutilated in the liturgical reform. Liturgy makes us tend toward eternal life, constantly leaning on the help of God and the merits of our Savior. Liturgy makes us love God with sincerity. If our dispositions are in accordance with our words and our gestures, we are constantly delighted in God, we seek to procure His glory, we unite our will to His. The moral virtues are also taught by the liturgy, which gives a supernatural impulse to practice them. Being a prayer, and the most excellent of them all, the liturgy gathers the soul in God, concentrating it on divine things. It makes us praise, adore, and give thanks before making demands, and thus it creates a more correct notion of prayer. It enriches meditation and the life of prayer. Liturgy, being the public and official worship of the Church, is not by itself and directly a teaching. Nevertheless, it is supported by religious truths. Likewise, the sovereign pontiff Pius XI declared in the encyclical Quas Primas, which we read in the refectory of Gricciliano every year, which is good to repeat, to instruct the people in the things of the faith and thereby elevate them to the interior joys of life, the annual celebrations of the holy mysteries are of far greater efficacy than all the documents of the ecclesiastical magisterium, even the most serious ones. And in the course of audiences given to the Roman seminary, of which our dear Monsignor Piolanti has narrated the discourses, this great Pope loved to repeat that the liturgy is a very grand thing. It is the most important organ in the ordinary magisterium of the Church, the didascalia of the Church. The liturgical year is nothing else than the Apostles' Creed, seen through feast days. The liturgical year by Don Garanger is a wealth of historical, patristic, theological, and liturgical knowledge. Don Garanger shows us in his writings that Jesus Christ himself is the effectuation, as well as the object, of the liturgy. And this is why the liturgical cycle is nothing other than the manifestation of Jesus Christ and his mysteries in the Church and in the souls of the faithful. This teaching aspect of the liturgy is in view of the spiritual life. And there again, there is nothing systematic, no sequencing or logical deduction. The didactic virtue proper to the liturgy comes from the fact that the teaching is englobed in prayer, the virtue is thus supernatural, abundant in grace. Truth turned into prayer enters into our deep vital current, not risking to remain on the surface of our souls or becoming a kind of incomprehensible theorem. The majesty, the hierarchy of it, is important. That suffices. Nothing human, nothing that one today would call pastoral, should be introduced. 
Otherwise, it becomes obvious that one believes more in our little methods, our ideas, than in the liturgy of the Holy Church of God, than in the intrinsic force of her expressions, than in the mysterious and efficacious grace that she propagates. Listen to the words of St. Teresa of Avila, Doctor of the Church. I remain astounded by the grandeur of the ceremonies of the Church. Part 2. The liturgy is the heart of the Church. The worship of God, the liturgy, comes forth from his heart, the holy temple of God and tabernacle of the Most High. On earth as in heaven, Christ, our High Priest, renders to his Father the only acceptable worship. In the heart of Jesus, the earthly liturgy and the heavenly liturgy form one soul and perfect praise. There the throne of divine mercy, there the altar and place of the Redeemer's immolation. It is in order to dispense the blood of the redemption and the infinite riches of the wounded heart of Jesus that priests, members of the priestly hierarchy, have been marked by the character and inundated with the grace of holy orders. Their first function, therefore, is liturgical worship, and it is by worship, thus by the merits of Christ alone, that the sanctification of man is brought about. It is this that the last council taught. Liturgy is the source and summit of the Christian life. It is by the worship of Christ and the administration of the sacraments that the faithful receive the baptismal priesthood and grow in Christian life. In them, Christ prays and they become agreeable to the justice of God and are the object of delight for his spirit of love by virtue of their humble union to the unique sacrifice of the word. It is thus fitting that the faithful of Christ drink at the pure source of Catholic liturgy. Pope Pius XI, in an era already troubled by the plague of indifference and menaced by society's heinous de-Christianization, had understood this, when he instituted the liturgical feast of Christ's kingship. The Pope, in fact, declared this in his encyclical Quas Primas. The doctrine of the royal dignity of our Savior must be made known as widely as possible. There seems to be no better means of ensuring this than the institution of a special feast in honor of Christ the King. For in order to penetrate the people with the truths of the faith and thus elevate them to the joys of the interior life, the annual solemnities of liturgical feasts are far more effective than all the documents, even the most serious ones, of the ecclesiastical magisterium. The magisterial documents usually only reach the few and the most cultivated, while the liturgical feasts touch and instruct all the faithful. The magisterial documents, if one may put it this way, speak only once, while the liturgical feasts do so every year and in perpetuity. And if the former speak especially to the intelligence, the latter extend their salutary influence to the intelligence as well as to the heart, that is to say, to the whole man. How far this is from that false, mediocre, and culpable conception that demeans liturgy to the self-centered celebration of a vaguely defined assembly May we be delivered from desires to subject the liturgical tradition to pastoral inventions that will vanish away.
It is in a mixture of wonder, humility, and interior receptivity that the Christian soul should welcome liturgical splendor. In the details of the ceremonies, in the gestures and objects that work together for the beauty of divine worship, an authentic path into the mystery of God is revealed. The Pope continues, Human nature is such that it cannot easily rise to meditation of divine things without exterior aid. That is why our pious mother, the Church, has instituted certain rites, such as pronouncing certain things in a low voice and th certain things in a louder voice during Mass. The Church has also introduced other ceremonies, such as mystical blessings, lights, incense, vestments, and many other things like this, received from the authority and tradition of the Apostles. In this way, the majesty of such a great sacrifice is emphasized and the minds of the faithful will be stimulated through these visible signs of religion and piety toward contemplation of the highest things that are hidden in this sacrifice. The liturgy could be compared to a table attentively prepared for a marriage. The silverware is put out carefully, as well as the glasses, cups, wines, dishes, and flowers. The table is magnificently beautiful because of the time taken to put each thing in its place. The tablecloths are lovely, the glasses are beautiful, the wines are well chosen and prepared with refinement. What a beautiful expression of our Christian civilization. Nevertheless, the appreciation of wine calls for the education of the palate, just as the appreciation of great music requires training of the ear. Certain people would think that these things are all purely subjective, to each his own. Say to an expert wine taster, it is good wine because you like it. I would be quite curious to see how he responds. We think that this is also true for the sensible things in the liturgy. Education is necessary. In the execution of our holy ceremonies, the essential remains veiled and mysterious. The symbols, the gestures of the liturgy, are there to reveal to our eyes a little of the divine mysteries. That is why we attach so much importance to details, to fine points of exterior aspects of the liturgy. It is these that serve to protect and manifest the substance of the mystery, giving it its full splendor. Liturgical symbolism in itself is always concerned with the senses and will always remain in the realm of the accidental. However, every sensible characteristic serves as a means of rising toward what is sacred and the object of the intellect, in conformity with St. Thomas's teaching on abstraction. The multiplication of sensible things does not impede one's grasp of what is essential and divine. The smallest visible things in exterior worship are causes that dispose immaterial realities to pass to the depths of the soul and that favor the soul's interior worship. Each rubric is accidental, of course, and yet it is these that make the ceremony beautiful. The spouse is pleased to come to our banquet because everything has been well prepared. There is a liturgy of the dinner table. We priests, we have a liturgy of the altar. And because our love for our master is great, do not reproach us, for bringing so much care to the altar and everything around it. We want to look upon every rubric 
Yes, in the same way that a spouse is attentive to every detail. Here is an anecdote. In the collection of St. Philip Neri's books in Valicella, there is one book which is very worn, while the others are in surprisingly good condition. The book is entitled, The Order of the Mass That the Priest Must Follow When He Celebrates Without Chant and Without Ministers. It is a treatise on the ceremonies for low mass. St. Philip must have read and reread this book in the months preceding his priestly ordination. Is it not the Holy Ghost's desire, through the infusion of the gift of piety, to arouse this love of detail, to carry out divine worship as perfectly as possible? Divine movements are subtle. Let us be attentive to perceive them. The work of the liturgist, like the work of the theologian, is a fine sculpture meticulously chiseled to the finest detail. Thus rubrics are to worship what words are to theology. They must be chosen from a thousand, weighed and weighed again for each definition. The rubrics are to worship what rules are to sacred rhetoric in order to move hearts and evoke holy desires. Saints know how to find the words and gestures to move their listeners to tears. Liturgy has the same desire in all this attention given to the gestures and objects that are used at the altar for worship. The rubrics are to worship what a pinch of salt is to a well-cooked dish. One must have the right measure for a good taste. Modern liturgy has all too often lost all savor because it has spurned the rubrics, preferring to abandon body and soul to the subjective creativity of priests and laity. Sometimes it is touching with piety. Most often it is insipid and distasteful. It is anarchical and dripping with emotional sentimentality. In order to produce beautiful things, it is necessary to have the spirit of finesse and to make adjustments down to the slightest detail. Such is the price of beauty. Not understanding this would demonstrate a lack of formation. Let us be understood. It is not a matter of lace, fabrics, bizarre obsessions, aesthetic choices, or even art. And if liturgy does employ art, the liturgical spirit is nevertheless not an artistic movement, and we are not artists. As Jesus in his earthly life poured forth the radiance of his grace on his disciples and led them on the path of holiness, Throughout the centuries, he mystically draws Christians to follow his steps by means of the liturgy, which continues his prayer and his action. We thus see the fundamental importance that Catholic tradition has always given to the Holy Liturgy, sometimes to the point of threatening with canonical penalties those who refuse to carry out their functions correctly. We read as much in the life of St. Francis de Sales, who had to face the brazen indocility of the chapter of canons at Ansi. After wrestling with the chapter's dean on the subject of a question of liturgical precedence, meekness and long arguments having proven fruitless, St. Francis de Sales sent him this short note. Monsieur le doyen, I absolutely, and without appeal, will that your cantors, the subdeacon that you will give me, and the incense-bearer be canons, notwithstanding all your customs, since those of my church are of that quality.
I command this to your chapter and to you, in virtue of holy obedience, and under pain of excommunication latis sententiae, in witness whereof I have signed this present letter. Francis de Sales, Bishop of Geneva. It does not suffice for a Christian to meditate or even to imitate Jesus. It does not suffice for him to apply by faith the merits of our Redeemer. It is rather still necessary that in the course of sacred actions he unite himself to the permanent action of Jesus, that he die and live with him, by him. The liturgy, we may say, is the redemptive work of the Savior, in that it represents it to us and associates us with it in an effective manner, according to the measure of our faith and devotion. Faith is our assent to the mystery being celebrated. Devotion is assimilating in our souls the dispositions of Christ himself. Throughout the liturgy, we are both passive and active. We welcome the gift of God in a welcome that goes to the point of being cooperation, which is the continuation of the gift. Part 3 Finally, liturgy is a balm for our society, groaning under the sins of the world. We must hold the pure richness and noble beauty of Catholic worship against the false mysteries of a world orphaned to God. Our world, this world that we perhaps do not see well enough, somewhat preserved from it as we are, is descending into anarchy and chaos. One of the greatest bishops of France of the last century, Cardinal P, taught with authority in the face of a world drunk with its own reason, the problems of society will be resolved by the public celebration of divine worship. Indeed, in the sacred liturgy, the creature's loving submission to his Lord is efficaciously manifested. This submission to God is at the base of order, interior order, but also exterior, and therefore social order. Perfect harmony, the preeminent form of order par excellence, from which temporal order receives its laws and by which it is sanctified. We always return to the same point. In spite of what some people argue, there will never be true peace in the world and in the Church except by the reign of Christ. To arrive at that point, I dare to hope with Cardinal P for the flowering and spread of Catholic worship throughout all the earth. It was through its sacred action, in which supernatural justice and charity operate, that Christianity was constituted. It is only in this same way that it will be established anew. It is through public religious practice, participation in the perfect sacrifice of the Savior, that the Christianity of tomorrow will be sanctified and thereby confirmed and strengthened. Ubi enim tesaurum vesta est, ibi et quo vestrum erit. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. I want the sacred liturgy to be your treasure for it is the source of our spiritual life as well as the authentic crucible of our union with God. It is our consolation and our delight, for it anticipates the heavenly liturgy and reproducing it here below. Indeed, the Church's liturgy 
accompanying all of the greatest moments of her sacramental and doctrinal life, is one of the most precious treasures that our Savior left to his theandrical spouse. Yes, it is the liturgy that constitutes the mirror, reflecting the beauty of divine revelation. Not only does it reflect the supernatural virtue of the Trinitarian mysteries, it also causes man to participate every day through rituals and verbal expressions in the richness of God's interior life. Liturgy is the direct source of this life for all the faithful. It is its privileged place in the history of salvation. It is the realization of the presence of the divine majesty on this earth laid waste by sin and human misery. Therefore, it is more than reasonable, rather it is truly necessary that the treasure of the Roman Catholic liturgy, with its history and ancient tradition, be ever more widely known, venerated, and celebrated, so that hearts will be oriented in the direction foreseen by providence when it causes this instrument of grace to grow over the centuries by the intervention of the Holy Ghost. Let us recall the Pater Noster. Sanctificeto nomen tuum. Hallowed be thy name. This is the first petition of the Pater. The first Christian duty, according to the order in the Pater Noster, is the glorification of God. It is not only a personal duty incumbent on each individual, but also a social duty that every Christian is bound to fulfill as a member of this social body, which is the Church, Christian society. Now no one would contest that the liturgy is par excellence, the divine praise established and organized by the Church, spouse and heir of Christ, the authentic depository of the thoughts and desires of its founder. The liturgy is the most suitable instrument to praise and glorify God, the one that best enables a Christian to fulfill this first duty, which is infinitely beyond him, for it permits him to fulfill this duty through Christ and in union with him. Liturgy, in its most profound and essential signification, is nothing other than the offering of the redeeming sacrifice. It is the great prayer of humanity united to Christ. It is the participation of each and everyone in Christ, of all together and of each individually, each one bringing forth the preparation of all his personal efforts and asceticism, and all people together, held up and sustained by God's grace that penetrates them. Liturgy, therefore, favors in a remarkable way both personal piety and social or communal piety. As we were saying, liturgy is essential for a return to God, a return to God and also union with God. Such is the aim of the spiritual life, an ever-growing perfect conformity to God by an ever-greater assimilation to Christ, according to the words of St. Paul to the Philippians, Ocenem sentite in vobis quod in Christo Jesu. For let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Liturgy reveals itself to be the simplest way, the surest way to assimilate oneself to Jesus Christ and thus arrive at union with God. Union with God by assimilation to Christ. The spiritual life, therefore, consists of giving God the first place in the soul.
Now, the liturgy, in dealing principally, if not exclusively, with God, does it not proclaim that God is above everything and everyone and should be first served, according to the words of St. Joan of Arc? Does it not say that God is beautiful enough to capture all of the soul's regards, high enough to surpass all of the soul's needs for truth and her intelligence, good enough to satisfy and overwhelm all of the heart's desires? In turning all regards toward Christ and by him toward God, the liturgy produces in the Christian soul two important effects. It detaches the soul from herself and unites her to God. It teaches the soul to focus her energies and orient them toward God, and thus it helps multiply their strength. It accustoms the Christian to join all things to one central idea, to group all of the elements of his intellectual and moral life around the idea of Christ living before him, around the thought of God. God first. How important for today. No social assistance for the poor or anything else will succeed without this return to God first. Such is the unifying principle, magnificent and strong, that the liturgy gives, and by which the Christian sees, understands, judges, and loves. If one realizes that man must constantly guard himself against dissipation and multiplicity, and that unity is the law of life and perfection, it is possible to understand the powerful assistance that the liturgy gives the Christian in the work of his sanctification by throwing into his soul the idea of God as a principle of unity, and I would even say as a center to crystallize all of his energies. Liturgy draws the soul outside of herself rather than inward towards self-absorption and agonizing psychoanalysis. Liturgy speaks of God, rises toward God, teaches the soul almost imperceptibly to forget herself and to think only of God and neighbor. I would say that the liturgy seems to repeat unceasingly to us the word of God to St. Catherine of Siena. Think of me, and I will think of you. Indeed, the liturgy helps free us from individual egoism, from a piety too personal and self-centered, in order to give us a true Christian and social sense. Yes, dear friends, liturgy is the expression and exercise of the virtue of religion. It is the surest and most direct way to progress toward the perfection of charity. Liturgy leads to God, speaks of God, speaks to God. It is the efficacious and fruitful response to the first three of the Ten Commandments. We have briefly seen here how the liturgy is the source and summit of the Christian life, as the last council reminds us, how essential it is, how it should be our first preoccupation, and how we must all be entirely convinced of this truth and of this reality. Social justice, peace, morality, all of this will come through the primacy of God and therefore through the liturgy. We store our churches in order to worship there, in order to sing the glory of God there. Such is the radiating influence that will permit, if God wills it, the restoration of a true Christian era. Our Roman liturgy has been attacked throughout history by all the Church's enemies. In the 4th century by Vigilantius, 
who decried the pomp of the church, Nicu Nove Sub Sole, the devotion paid to relics, priestly celibacy, etc. In the 11th century by Beringer, who dogmatized against the Eucharist and opened the door to the age of rationalism against Christian worship. In the 13th century by the Waldensians, who claimed that every layman is a priest, who repudiated devotion to the Most Holy Virgin and prayers for the dead, and who refused to recognize any truths outside of the Holy Scriptures. In the 16th century, by Luther, Calvin, and all the reformers who rejected tradition and many of the sacraments, and who did not wish to acknowledge any authority outside of a free interpretation of the Bible. In the 17th and 18th centuries, by the Jansenists and Gallicans, who made a shambles of the Roman Missal and Breviary, without taking into consideration the work of the sovereign pontiffs throughout the centuries. In the 19th and 20th centuries, by modernism, that great combination of all heresies, which seems, in all of the things we see around us, to have destroyed the liturgy. I would like to read you what Cardinal Siri said in 1961, just before the disaster, on the subject of places of worship. When the destructive instinct appears, the first step is fanaticism. Read on this subject the history of the 16th century. From this point of view, artistic modes and fashions deserve special attention. It is not a secret to anyone that the most widespread and popular church designs come from Protestant circles. It is not our purpose here to talk about imagination or about the creative artistic capacities that in the past centuries, have often shown themselves to be underdeveloped in certain places where one did not know how to build the church without taking a model from five, six, or seven centuries before. It would be interesting to treat this subject. But what interests us here is the fact that these models that are so praised and almost imposed were developed in cases where the building was only used for an hour a week and only for a song, a reading, a sermon, there, the bareness makes sense. How will the walls be for anything other than cold when they were destined for an assembly that has stifled scenic and choreographic art, symbol, drama, as well as divine representations, material symbols of real and acting mysteries? In this way, we arrive at this infatuation with taking for distinction what is nothing other than bareness and stripping down. It is true that some decorations may be unoriginal and academic, but not all. And yet all is forbidden. In the name of simplicity, altars are thought to be all the more wonderful, the more they resemble superimposed rocks, as thought to be originally, and all with an impressive monotony. Tabernacles are reduced to being tolerated shapeless little boxes, in spite of the mind of the Church, clearly expressed in the decree of the Sacred Congregation of Rites, September 3, 1958. The poverty of tabernacles signals the lack of esteem for divine things. In our diocese, we have personally reserved for ourselves the approval of every tabernacle that will be constructed, and we are firmly determined to prevent folly and irreverence from taking over what is the first homage paid to Jesus Christ even if it is a purely material one. And why all of this? Is it a question of art? No, it is despoilment. 
Let us quote some authorities on the question of art, praised today even by Catholics, probably inadvertently. The supreme criteria for 20th century architecture is the factory. Yes, indeed, the church is likened to a factory. The lights are turned off. At a certain hour of the day, the men abandon the factory, where they feel less like men, and they flee, without even turning to look back. The artist is completely free with regards to nature and can only be judged from his own viewpoint and personality. Now, obviously, the work of art should interest only the artist and not others. The work is an interior manifestation. The principles of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen authorize the artist to manifest his opinions freely and also, above all, his personal responsibility. One discovers that liberty and personal impression are sisters. The artist will obey nothing except his own ideas. He will be invited to unleash his own individuality, to translate egotistical impressions felt in life. The characteristic of the 20th century Renaissance will appear clearly when egoism, neologism, habit of speaking of self, using I unceasingly, will subdue altruism, when the cult of the personality will dominate the more traditional cult of sociality. No law except for oneself. Is it with criteria like this that one will build churches to him who, without sin, was crucified for all? Egoism will always tend toward isolation and poverty of being, even if there is some emotional richness. The moral weight that will result is despair. Indeed, this is what results from stripping down, from returning to the raw state. Men who are bored, lacking the sense of life which is a reflection of eternity, disfigure and destroy all reality that presents itself to them. Acting in this way, isn't this what we also call existentialism? The phenomenon of a sort of philosophical progression, born out of religious revolt, is becoming more and more obvious, and it is invading the field of art, to such an extent that very often there is no more question of art, but rather of ideological assertions. The drive of this philosophical progression, which has recently arrived at the mysticism of nothingness, seems to invade and animate what we persist in calling art, when oftentimes it is nothing more than the support of a state of mind in revolt or an anarchical philosophical doctrine. Then we understand the real tendencies of spoliations in the Church. Revolt against ecclesiastical order, against truth, and the absolute nature of truth against law, the affirmation of determinism joined to the assertion that fault is inevitable and therefore freely permitted. Revolt against the obligation of the intellect to tend toward truth. Such did characterize the sad advent of the 16th century, to which current history is very much detached in many ways. These are the elements that begin to reappear though still camouflaged or only whispered. It is the infiltration. And it is not a matter of detached episodes, but of a coming from a framework of destructive will. It is the merit, the great merit, of Pope Benedict XVI to have given the liturgy back to the Church 
and the Church back to the liturgy. Inspired by the Holy Ghost, great popes have developed and propagated the Roman liturgy throughout the Christian world. We can mention some from the first centuries. St. Victor, St. Felix I, St. Damasus, St. Celestine, St. Gregory the Great, St. Gelasius, St. Leo the Great. In the 11th century, the great Pope Gregory VII, of whom Cardinal Siri was particularly fond, and who succeeded in introducing the Roman liturgy in all of Spain. Innocent III, and then Urban IV in the 13th century, Pope from Troyes, who gave us the feast of Corpus Christi. Most assuredly, St. Pius V, who after the invention of the printing press was able to propagate easily the liturgical books commissioned by the Council of Trent. Gregory XIII, to whom we owe the calendar and the martyrology. Sixtus V, for the establishment of the Congregation of Rites. Clement VIII, the Roman Pontifical and the Ceremonial of Bishops. And St. Pius X. It is good to revisit and delve into the history of the liturgy, the history of the Church, in order to contemplate the magnificence and the indisputable presence of the Holy Ghost in the writing of sacred texts. It is why the enemies of the Church have always attacked the liturgy. They know the power of the liturgy, inspired directly by the Holy Ghost, as Don Garanger said so well. As proof, let us listen to Diderot. In my opinion, a church painter is a sort of preacher, clearer, more striking, more intelligible to the common man than is the rector or his curate. These talk to the ears, which are too often deaf. A picture speaks to the eyes, like the spectacle of nature, which has taught us almost everything we know. I go further. I consider the iconoclasts and those who disdain processions, images, statues, and all the ornaments of external worship, to be executioners employed by the philosoph, who is annoyed by superstition, with this difference, that the servants do it far more harm than their master. Suppress all the outward and visible signs, and the rest will soon be reduced to a metaphysical jargon, which will take as many forms and strange twists as there are heads. Suppose for a moment that all men become blind, I bet that before ten years have passed, they will fight and exterminate one another over the form, look, and color of the most familiar objects in the universe. So too in religion. Suppress all representation and all image, and soon the people will no longer agree. They will slash and kill over the most basic points of their beliefs. These absurd rigorists do not know the effect of external ceremonies on the people. They have never seen our adoration of the cross on Good Friday or the enthusiasm of the multitudes during the procession of Corpus Christi, enthusiasm which wins over even me on some occasions. I have never seen this long file of priests in their priestly vestments, these young acolytes in their white albs with their large blue cinctures, throwing flowers before the Blessed Sacrament, this crowd that precedes them and follows them in religious silence, so many men, their foreheads bent down to the earth. I have never heard this grave and poignant chant from the priests with affectionate responses made by infinite voices of men, women, girls, and children, without my entrails shaking with emotion, without tears coming to my eyes. 
There is something about it that's so grand, somber, solemn, melancholic. I knew a Protestant painter who spent a long time in Rome. He confessed that he could never see the sovereign pontiff officiating at St. Peter's, surrounded by cardinals and clergy, without becoming Catholic. He would return to his religion at the door. The French Revolution forbade processions, religious vows, and so on. And the Second Vatican Council began with reform of the liturgy. You see, I have wanted to convince you about this precious treasure that Providence has confided to us. I would like to conclude this conference by pointing out to you the marvelous model of Christian prayer that Jesus Christ left us in his own mother. Every Christian finds in Our Lady a model who is the purest in prayer, fervor, and gravity in worship. She is the consummate woman of prayer, the woman of the Eucharist, our teacher on the road toward the sacred host. Mary is the mother of the word of God. To quote Blessed Columba Marmion, Mary is in prayer. She is full of grace. The angel sent as ambassador to Nazareth gives her a message. What message? That the word has chosen her womb as the wedding chamber where he will wed humanity. The Holy Ghost will overshadow thee. And Mary responds, Be it done unto me according to thy word. In this divine moment, the first priest is consecrated, and the voice of the Father resounds in heaven. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Mary then truly becomes the house of gold, the ark of the covenant, the tabernacle in which human nature was united to the word. And by that union, Jesus was established forever in his mission of mediator.